Today's episode is presented by Advanced Recruiting Intelligence. Find out what makes this the fastest growing, most cost-effective recruiting management tool in college athletics and get your free demo at ARIRecruiting.com. And now, it's time for the show. That's right, it's time for today's episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast with your host, the man whose sassy new haircut is the talk of the town and America's college recruiting guru, Dan Tudor. Hey coach, it's Dan Tudor and boy do we have something great for you today. I don't know if you were aware of it, But this past weekend, February of 2020, it's the anniversary year, the 40th anniversary of the amazing 1980 men's ice hockey Olympic gold medal, the Miracle on Ice, where we stunningly beat the Soviet Union and really uh, made one of the most impactful, some would say the most impactful upset in, uh, in sports in U.S. history. And on today's show, we're going to dig in deep as to how Herb Brooks, who was the coach, he's been immortalized in the movie Miracle, uh, and and just throughout his pro and college career, uh, how he built that team. Not only how he how he coached the players, how he developed the culture, but how he recruited the players. And there are going to be so many lessons in this for you today, and we're going to go to the person that I know as the expert on the topic, Charlie Adams, has done so much research over the last decade into what built this team, uh, how amazing it was that they that they came away with this win, and what Coach Brooks did to build this team. So for anybody that is looking for next-level strategies on how to build a great program, how to really develop the culture the way that you want it, how to actively and specifically recruit the players that you want. This is going to be uh, just a great, great lesson, and I'm really excited to dig into it. We had a great conversation with Charlie Adams, uh, and uh, I'm going to get right to it because what what we want to do here is outline the strategies one by one and really sort of go through the process step by step of how Herb Brooks built this amazing team that now we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of the greatest upset in sports and uh, I'm excited about it. So we started off this conversation with Charlie Adams with the simple question, what made this such an incredible upset that we all now talk about and remember and commemorate? Dan, when you think about the Miracle on Ice, a lot of college coaches have seen the movie Miracle. Older ones might remember when it happened, but it's coming up on the 40th anniversary. And I think my approach with it really was moved about Three years ago when Sports Illustrated did the 100 greatest sports moments in American history and named it number one. And as a former broadcast journalist, I felt that's a story that really needs to continue to be researched and presented to younger people today. Because that's a staggering thing to be the number one sports moment in our nation's history. And when you think about the magnitude of it back 40 years ago, our nation was a mess after the 70s. Mm. And we were at the lowest point of self-esteem in our nation's history. And these group of primarily college hockey players 
as David beat Goliath, and they literally turned our country around. There'll never be anything like this again. You don't have a real Soviet Union out there with nuclear weapons pointed us towards them, communism versus democracy, a hurting nation. And so what Herb Brooks did with those players was so far above, so high up, especially because it's the Olympics, that it transcends. And my mission is just to continue to let folks know the magnitude of it and how they can take the tools from it and apply to their college program, their lives, and things of that nature. And, you know, the we're talking about the Olympic team, but you brought up something that, you know, what was mm-hmm. Coach Herb Brooks, uh, he gets, you know, focused on a lot as the, the, the U.S. Olympic hockey coach, and he was in 1980, but... He was also a, a highly successful college coach, and yet that it's funny that that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right, Dan. He had been uh, an outstanding amateur hockey player throughout his 20s. He had played for the Golden Gophers of Minnesota. Then he went into sales, and he played on the 64 and 68 team as an amateur in the Olympics. And then in his early 30s, he went into college coaching, and he coached the University of Minnesota from 73 to 80. He took over them. They had been 8-24 and 24 before he came in. His first year, just under 500. His second year, national champs. He won three national championships at Minnesota from 73 to 80. And he coached the Olympics at 42. And had he gone back to Minnesota, he would have had a legacy like a Pat Summit or a Gino Ariema or a Mike Shashevsky. And I believe Herb Brooks was a genius. He had a degree in psychology from Minnesota. He knew how to motivate. And he was ahead of his time in his sport, college hockey, and in, later in pro hockey. They're doing things today that he was doing back in the 70s. So a lot of people, that they know, oh, yeah, Kurt Russell played in Miracle. Uh, Herb Brooks, great. Most people don't know he was a very successful D1 coach at Minnesota throughout much of the 70s. So t- talk a little bit about that. I mean, and, and I don't know anybody else that are probably out there that is more of an expert on this you know sort of micro topic of the 1980 Miracle on Ice team and, and the people uh, that, that made it up, uh, that, that made up that team. And so with Herb Brooks from University of Minnesota, uh, he had had some practice in building great teams, and we'll get into that mm-hmm. here in a second with the Miracle on Ice team and how he put that team together. Because I think there's some yeah, great yeah. lessons for college coaches yeah. in how he did it. So, but what was his philosophy at the University of Minnesota? How did he build those teams? Excellent question, Minnesota. You know, he was a native of Minnesota and winning the high school championship at Johnson High was huge for him having grown up in St. Paul there in the suburbs. St. Paul a lot different from Minneapolis then as it is today in a way. He cared deeply about Minnesota. So when it came time when he was recruited, Michigan offered him a lot, Air Force, but his dad said, Herb, if you love Minnesota so much, you should play at Minnesota, and he did. So then when he became the head coach of the University of Minnesota hockey team, among his philosophies, and it's interesting that more college coaches don't do this now, he recruited 99, almost 100% Minnesota players Mm -hmm. because he knew what that M on their chest would mean to them. And he wanted players that cared deeply about representing their home area. Now, a lot of college coaches got kids from Canada back then and all, but he strictly went after Minnesota kids. He also liked kids that had been captains in high school sports 
and he really put a lot of stock into home visits. And you hear this a lot of coaches watching interactions with parents. And a lot of these Minnesota kids had strong values back in the day. Values was very big for Herb Brooks. Yes, he wanted talent. And he did one thing one time with a player named Don Micheletti, who had other offers, a Minnesota high school hockey player. And another college was offering him a full scholarship. Well, Herb was in his home and offered him half to play at Minnesota. And the kid, Don, said, well, it means so much for me to play for Minnesota. I'm going to bypass that other offer and go for you. And Herb, it was almost like Willy Wonka. He (laughs) said, well, I'm glad to hear that because I'm going to give you a full. I planned on doing it, but I wanted to see how much you wanted to play for Minnesota. Isn't that something? Just like even just the 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 guts to do that i mean that's because you're yeah. really, you're risking losing a kid and yet he had the confidence but is that really i had never heard that before charlie that really yeah. what what it tells me is that he had a bedrock philosophy that he was going to operate within and it didn't matter i guess the name or how good you were or the resume you brought in if you weren't going to fit into his system or the way he mm-hmm. was going to do it then he might not take you. That's an amazing story. What it it, it really was, yeah. Uh, so so sort of build on that. Um, these teams that he built, um, you know, we talk about early recruiting now, uh, and you know, yeah. the 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 way that that goes on, and some of the rules now that are in place to prevent it. Mm-hmm. But but Herb Brooks was, uh, from what you've been, what you say is he mm-hmm. he did early recruiting. I mean, he, that was part of his philosophy. He did, especially when the talent warranted it. Of course, Herb coached there from 73 to 80. He identified Neil Broughton as an eighth grader. And so Herb Brooks, or one of his assistants, was at one of his games almost every week throughout high school. And Neil Broughton uh, committed and signed for them and played in 79. And as a freshman, he set a record for assist, helped them win the national championship. Brooks is third in his three years and, and went on to play for that Olympic team and play in the National Hockey League for a long time. And so he did identify him going into ninth grade. He didn't do that with everyone, with some of them he did later, but Broughton was a phenomenal player. And you talk about values and the kind of people he was looking for. I was reading Wayne Coffey's book, The Boys of Winter, about the Miracle on Ice. And Neil Broughton, when he was in high school, like most of the players that would play on the Miracle on Ice, they came from low to barely middle-income homes, and they only had one bathroom, the Broughtons did. He would voluntarily go to school to shower so that his sisters could have the bathroom. (laughs) You know, there wasn't squabbling. And Broughton, it, it was just a wonderful young man. He was so humble during his years at Minnesota. And then in the NHL. And so Brooks loved players like that. Right. Just, you know, we're talking about Herb Brooks and Miracle on Ice and recruiting mm-hmm. specifically. But take a step back and just from your studies and research and all the different phases of how he built his career. Can you just talk about a little bit of Herb Brooks, just the coach and the person? Because uh, I think a lot of coaches are, you know, they like to model their careers after certain coaches or they have different personality traits they might admire in certain coaches. But I'm just wondering from if they were going to look at Herb Brooks, um, whether it was recruiting, coaching, you know, handling people, you know, organization, what was, who was he? Like what, what kind of a person was he as a, as a coach overall? 
Well, Herb Brooks grew up in a humble, barely middle-income neighborhood in St. Paul that had various immigrant-type families that believed in the value of hard work. And so he wanted players that would bring their lunch pail. Now, don't get me wrong. He wanted fast players, especially in the 1980 Maraclone Ice at Minnesota. He, he wanted stronger, also fast players. But he was one that just believed in patriotism as far as red, white, and blue, the Olympics, and aspiring for representing your community, your state, your region. He was a very bright man uh, with a degree in psychology, and I also believe he had some uh, education in economics. Mm. And he was a very stern guy, and obviously Kurt Russell captured him in the Disney movie Miracle. He had to be standoffish on that team to bring them close together because they came from different regions. Right. But as a coach and as a man, he did change styles. You know, he in 2002 came back 22 years after the Miracle on Ice and coached our uh, hockey team in the Olympics of professionals. And he was much different. He, as a leader, understood he had to adapt his style instead of the cold, uh, they're going to you know, dislike me and come together from the Miracle on Ice to then having professionals in 2002. But there's various books on uh, Brooks and, that really get into the kind of person he was. And some people will say, well, that style won't work today. Uh, but it worked for him in certain cases. And he, as a result, is the architect of the greatest coaching accomplishment in sports history, the Miracle on Ice. So so he gets uh, – well, I'm not even sure if I know this question or the answer to this question. How mm -hmm. – when – the he's selected as the coach. How did that happen? So, um, you know, we yeah. know, you know, the sort of the modern version of how coaches get selected. A lot of right. times they have, you know, they're coaching the national team and that type of thing, but you know, how, how did he get asked to right. coach the Olympic team? So he had been at Minnesota 73 to 80 and then around 78 since the 1980 winter Olympics, we're going to be in Lake Placid on our soil in New York and the Soviets had been crushing everybody in the sixties and seventies, there was concern we would be humiliated in 1980 in Lake Placid. And so there were other good college coaches, but in the past they had all gone two months of prep and just using the old style of American hockey. And it was at the O'Hare Hilton in Chicago in 78 that Brooks just blew away the committee and any college coaches out there thinking about their interviews in their career ahead. Brooks came in. He had been studying the Soviet Eastern Bloc style for years, and he came in with a presentation because he had a philosophy of you can't be common. The common person goes nowhere. You have to be uncommon. Mm. And he presented how there would be a change. They would work in the Soviet weaving style. Instead of two months together, they would be together almost seven. They would do uh, numerous exhibition games, 61 all over, including against minor league teams where he got it to count for them and their standing. So they gave constant effort against the Olympic team and they were blown away and he got the job and and Kurt Russell said later it was a big risk for Brooks because he aspired to coach in the NHL what if he had gone and been embarrassed in Lake Placid that could have hurt his future NHL career but yet it didn't and by doing all these different things he was able to stun the Soviets and then go on to win right. gold. You know, it was interesting, you know, again, you and I are of the age where we remember, you know, the, the, I'll say the rivalry with the Soviet Union, but it was, you know, it was the Cold War. And, you know, the, the, you mentioned the concern that the committee, the Olympic Committee in the U.S. had yeah. for being possibly humiliated by 
the Russians. And that was, um, that was just a different time, wasn't it? Where you, you don't have mm-hmm. that. now. I was trying to think like, what would be the equivalent of, you know, no. um, I don't, I don't know that there would be anything right now where, where that would happen on the athletic side of things in the Olympics. No. Current day. Right. And you know, the Soviets, when they left Moscow before the uh, winter Olympics of 1980, they were told by Brezhnev and them to disgrace us on our soil. So that's what we were dealing with as they used communism. They used hockey as a way to do it. And another thing that Brooks did knowing all this, and you talk about college coaches and scheduling with teams, he did all those exhibition games, which had never been done before. And the last one was against the Soviet team three days before the 1980 Winter Olympics in Madison Square Garden. And we were beaten 10 to 3. But Brooks did that knowing that the USA Olympic hockey team would overcome their awe of them in that game and then have a better chance later. And that was a brilliant move that he did. Mm. But going back to that time, you'll never have another miracle on ice. Uh, It's just no way. I mean, people in a kidding way said, what if ISIS gets a soccer team? (laughs) It's that, that time was unparalleled and it led to 40 to 50 million Americans watching on ABC that Friday, February 22nd, when we played them, on a sheet of ice in the Adirondack Mountains in Lake Placid. Right. You know, and I remember uh, how I didn't see the game. I was in junior high. I was, I believe, in eighth grade when that happened. Uh And um, I remember I was at uh, like a church winter camp. And I still remember, um, you know, I wasn't a hockey fan growing up on the West Coast. You weren't growing up around hockey, but of course, you know, we rooted for the U.S. Olympic team and everything. And so I remember somebody at the, you know, at the front uh, we had this, you know, big gathering. And, and uh, he said, hey, you know, we played the Russians today and, um, you know, they're very good and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, sort of playing it down like I've got bad news. And then um, he uh, said the final score, the USA won. And I still remember the place erupted, all of these junior high kids going crazy that we had beat the Russians. And again, I don't think you would, you just wouldn't see that today. So, um, you know, again, if you didn't grow up with that, it was, you know, so here you have uh, Coach Herb Brooks, and he's built a successful college team. He gets asked to be the U.S. Mm -hmm. Olympic coach after a great interview. Talk to me about, Mm -hmm. in your study, in your research, Charlie, the way he built that team and the way he recruited players because he really had to sort of go out and and pick a team and and recruit players and they wanted to play, but he he really had to rebuild uh, or build a team from scratch to go out and compete with the Russians. How Walk me through some ways he did that. I think there's some valuable lessons for coaches and how they build their teams. Absolutely, Dan. Well, he had been observing as coach at Minnesota, closely observing players in the Massachusetts area, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and obviously Minnesota, because back then that's primarily where college hockey was played. And then in 1979, the summer before the next year's Winter Olympics in Lake Placid, they had a national sports festival out there where he took dozens of players and he got other top college coaches to help him evaluate, put them on different teams based on their regions and watched and watched and and whittled it down to 26, which he kept 
throughout the months leading in, knowing that it would be 20 for the Winter Olympics, and those 26 gave all. But he was looking for speed because the Soviets, the Swedes, the Czechs were very fast. He was truly looking for smarts because he was going to totally revamp the American style of play to mesh with the Soviet style, a hybrid of others. He really needed bright kids, he, and he was looking for, obviously, leaders, a lot of kids that had been captains and people that knew how to make plays. And that's what he did. Uh, he had been watching at the World Championships the year before, Jim Craig, who would go on to be goalie. He was impressed with him and, and players like Mikey Ruzioni, who physically wasn't one of the superstars, but had all those intangibles. And as it's it's in the Disney movie Miracle, he wasn't necessarily looking for the best players, but the right players. And there's really something to that. He wanted players that could check their ego at the door, still have egos. Mm -hmm. And the challenge he had in all this was it was so regional. You had the Boston players who had great disdain for the Western Midwest, especially Minnesota players, and vice versa. Uh, that's dramatized in the movie uh, Miracle, but it was true. So all those things were going on, and that's how he started the process. And he truly, he didn't get everybody he wanted. There was one player, Joe Mullen, uh, he really wanted, but who right out of college signed pro and wasn't eligible for the Olympics. So he didn't, it's like every college coach listening, you don't get everybody you want, but he got a lot of what he was looking for, and it was a beautiful building of that team. So, Charlie, the I mean, there's all sorts of individuals you could go through because there's a lot of, you know, he really took, and in, in reading a lot of your stuff, he really took a very individualized approach and he paid attention to kind of how different personalities would match and mix and push one another. And he wasn't just looking for the best hockey talent. He really, it seemed like, took time to build that team, um, you know, piece mm -hmm. by piece. Right, Dan. And he knew how to motivate in the sense of he knew who to yell at, who not to. Mark Johnson, who would score two goals against the Russians, he never yelled at. He knew he didn't need that. Others he did. He had an arrangement with Jack O'Callaghan, uh, who was one of the defensemen out of Boston University. He said, if I call you Jack when I'm yelling at you, that's more personal. If I say, oh, see, that's I'm going through you to the team. So he even because these were mature young men, there was a couple of 19, 20 year olds, but most were a little older than that. Mm -hmm. And he made Mikey Ruzioni the captain who was from Boston University. He made Jim Craig the goalie from Boston University, even though half of that 1980 Olympic team, just over half was from Minnesota and everything he did put a lot of thought into right There's and a he made very it. few yeah he made very few mistakes along the way in that whole trail so you mentioned um michael ruzioni and of course you know if you don't know some of you might remember he scored the winning goal against the soviet union in mm -hmm. that game um and you know was obviously an important member of that team go back to college i think that's fascinating yeah um, his recruiting when he was in high school, trying to get into college. What just walk through that? Because here's oh. a player that made a name for himself on the international level and shocked the world. And but just go back to his oh. high school recruiting. There's a great lesson here in your college coaches on not missing a player because New Hampshire, after they missed Mikey Ruzioni in recruiting for years, their coaches said, we can't have another Eruzioni where we miss a kid because Boston University got him. This is a kid after his senior year of the summer, 
he had no D1 offers. He thought he was going to go to Merrimack, a D2. In Winthrop, Massachusetts, outside Boston, Irusioni did nothing but make plays and lead in high school. He was a multi-sport kid. He scored two goals in a minute in the state hockey championship game. But people overanalyzed him. They thought, well, he's not the quickest, maybe the maybe the not the best shot maker or on skates, but he had all these intangibles. Right. Uh, he was known as a Pete Rose on skates, and he had the four things college coaches look for, drive, resiliency, team loyalty, and the instinct for the big play. He never missed a game at Boston University. He made the big plays. He made the big play in the Russian game in high school. And at Boston University, he went on to be their all-time leading scorer and defensive player of the year four times. Well, he's coming out of high school. College coaches have, like New Hampshire and others, uh, they thought he was too small. Boston College thought he was too poor of a skater. He had more football offers, ironically. But what happened was he was asked to go to some summer uh, hockey game, and Jack Parker was there, the Boston University coach who had just lost a couple of recruits. And he said, where are you going? And he said, I don't have any D1 offers. He said, you do now. And Jack Parker offered him the summer before Iruzioni's freshman year. Wow. And Iruzioni went on to be one of the greats there and make the biggest play in the history of sports. And many college coaches overanalyzed the physical traits, and they did not get the intangibles. They missed the boat. Uh, And that's just a cautionary tale for coaches today. Right. Um, and of course, he wasn't the only star of that team and the individual that, that might stand out because in that Soviet Union game in uh, that uh, and many people don't remember, it wasn't the gold medal game. It was the game leading mm-hmm. up to what was yeah. the gold medals, the semifinal. Um, but Jim Craig in that game, the goalie stopped 36 of 39 shots that the Russians took. Um, yeah. So talk about him. You know, again, same story. We talked about Mike Ruzioni and, and his recruiting. Yeah. What was what was uh, Jim Craig's recruiting like coming, uh, yeah. coming out of high school into college? Right. And before, I just want to say quickly, for coaches out there, there's a brand new book, a bestseller, The Making of a Miracle by Eruzioni. He's just written it after 40 years. I highly recommend it. But Jim Craig was also from near Boston, Northeastern. And growing up, he got into hockey when the mailman came by and suggested it. So him and his mom went nearby. He didn't even know anything about the rules. That's why he started playing goalie because he figured, okay, you just stop the puck. And they had very little money. He had to borrow gear from people's, and that's how it started. Well, Jim Craig was undersized coming through high school. He really didn't grow until late in high school. So after a phenomenal high school career, the D1s overlooked him. So he went to a community college, Massasoit, for a year as many coaches know, and he grew, and then Boston University signed him, and he went on his junior year. He was 55-10-3, or overall, his junior year, he went unbeaten. They won the national championship, and Jim Craig was just so competitive. Sometimes people mistook his confidence for cockiness, which could, say, send some people the wrong way. But he was a phenomenal amateur goalie. His pro career, maybe it didn't work out like some would think. But again, he was one that benefited from going to community college for one year. Right. And he came in. Now, you talk about confident. The Boston University talked about the other two goalies they had. He said, well, I've seen them. I'll be your goalie. As a college coach, how do you take that? Do you go, whoa, do I want that? Or do you go, okay, that's the fire within that I do want. It's a fine line. 
And he had a great career at Boston U. And then obviously did, Dan, what he did against the Russians has been called by historians, the greatest performance under pressure in American sports history because of communism versus democracy. The Him facing the Soviets of all of those incredible players, Sergei Makarov, Boris Mikhailov, Valerie Karlamov, that would be like in basketball, a player getting back on defense and a, and a, a three-on-two with Bird, Magic, and Jordan coming, and then Steph Curry, LeBron. That's the wave of the Soviets in 1980. So a little bit there of uh, Jim Craig's backstory. Well, so and so, let's. This is a good jumping-off point to talk about the the Soviet team too, and and how that got built. And you mentioned, you know, that they, the the U.S. was just a bunch of college kids, basically cobbled together, you know, by Herb Brooks. The Soviet Union was much, much different in how they built their teams and and what they sent on to the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that? Just in yeah. case people, you know, if they're having this vision of it's a bunch of Russian college kids against a, a bunch yeah. of U.S. college kids, that is not what it was at all. No, and there's a lot of wisdom from this story to help college coaches today. The uh, Russians created ice hockey after World War II as as different ways to to rebuild their country and to uh, do things on an international level with their political beliefs. And so they went to a man named Anatoly Tarasov, and he was told to build it without really looking at the Canadian style. And so he went to the circus. He went to the ballet, he went to the theater, he went to novelist, chess makers, and that's how he developed this remarkable style of ice hockey, this mesmerizing, this great documentary came out about four years ago called Red Army, which I highly recommend on the building of the Soviet style, their weaving style, how they shared the puck. He who had the puck was the servant to others. And Tarasov leading in to the he's coached into the 70s he wanted three things in players and think about this college coaches he wanted his players to have the accuracy of a sniper the wisdom of a chess player and the rhythm of a musician and that's what they had and if you watch that documentary red army you get into it of the background and you can find clips on there so tarasov uh he was replaced by tikhanov before well before 1980 and and they also they overdid it they kept their players in barracks for much of the year and all those kind of things so by 1980 that's one of the reasons they lost they were just worn out from Tikhanov but those three things the accuracy of a sniper the wisdom of a chess player the rhythm of a musician think about as a college coach in your development of your players yeah, what you look for. What do you, what was the average age of the, the Soviet mm-hmm. players? Yeah. Well, th- that's an interesting point for coaches as far as youth. Because while our players were average age 20 in 1980, you had Eruzioni and Buzz Schneider who were around 25. And then you had Mike Ramsey who was 19 and a bunch of kids that were seniors in college, 21, 22, like Mark Johnson and Jim Craig and all that. The Soviets ranged from the mid-30s, like Boris Mikhailov, who was like a god of world hockey, to Valery Karlamov, who was in his early 30s. And then they had Sergei Makarov and Vladimir Krutov, who were very, very young, teenagers, barely 20. 
And against Herb Brooks, Tikhanov made a mistake in the third period when we overtook them down 3-2, 3-3-4-3. He kept Karlamov and Mikhailov out there. And the conditioning that Brooks did for seven months, we beat them in the third period. They hardly got a shot on goal in the last 10 and five minutes. And he made a mistake because Sergei Makarov and Krutov were hurting the U.S. team the most but he kept the old guys out there thinking of their wisdom and experience because the Soviets had won gold 64, 68, 72, 76, and they were just worn out. Their legs were rubber. The conditioning Brooks did with these players was maybe the greatest in shape hockey team ever that 1980. None of uh, half of the team went to play in the uh, pros. They said they were never in the shape. They were in 1980, their whole pro careers. Wow. That is amazing. The the way they were pushed uh, and everything. Yeah. So they they win the game, and I don't want to get too much into. I want to keep the focus on yeah. recruiting, but yeah, um, in yeah. your research, you tell a really just. I mean, I think a coach can relate to this. Um, just to get into the, the head of a, of a successful coach like Herb Brooks, they win that game. Talk about what he did right after the game. Right. So th- this was brought up by Bo Ryan of Wisconsin in men's D1 basketball a few years ago when they shocked that undefeated Calipari, Kentucky team. But then they had to play Duke two nights later. And Bo Ryan said, we got to think about 1980. Our hockey team beat the Russians, but then had to beat Finland two days later. It didn't matter. And what happened, Bo Ryan in Wisconsin, they ended up losing to Duke two days later. Well, Brooks knew that beating the Russians was such a massive thing. It was arguably one of the greatest upsets ever. Although I don't like to call it a miracle because I think it was earned through everything the players and coaches did. They put themselves in position for that. They didn't luck into it. Well, what he did the next day, now this is staggering to college coaches who make a final four in any sport, whether it's volleyball, women's soccer, whatever. You win the semi, you got a day off, you got a game usually. So you have a walkthrough, a light thing. What happened was Brooks got there and saw them signing autographs because the, the night before February 22nd, 1980 was so huge. The president had called them, all those things. So he went in and threw a fit and put them through what some feel was the second hardest practice they had in seven months. So we're talking maybe a two and a half hour practice between semifinal and finals day, but they were in such staggering shape, Spartan-like. Then they played Finland and and won four to two for the gold on Monday, February 24th, 1980. And after they they won the gold medal after mm-hmm. that game, um, yeah. Herb Brooks did something not uh, not too typical for most coaches to do right after the mm-hmm. game. Is that correct? Yes. Well, the thing he did, Brooks, he kept a barrier between them because the regional differences between the Boston area and the Midwest was massive. And they had history going back to the 76 final four in hockey when there was a big fight. So he made himself the dark hat. He made his assistant, Craig Patrick, the good guy that they could go to. And so when, first of all, when we beat the Russians on February 22nd, 1980, everybody spilled out onto the floor. As you can see on the videos, Brooks went straight to the locker room because he didn't want to suddenly be their buddy. It was their moment. He did the same thing against Finland two days later. He went to a stall he, he wept. He thought of Ralph Cox, the player, he last player he cut out of the University of New Hampshire. 
and they had to get him out of there because the president was on the phone again. But he he definitely wanted it to be their time. He would have loved to. Have, these were mainly men, you know, back then. He would have loved to have gone out for beers with them a little bit during the. But he never did. He separated it and he stayed consistent to that. Wow, that's it's just it's so interesting the way you know different coaches manage their teams differently, and you have the coaches who are buddies, and you have the coaches then like mm-hmm. the folks who very much do put up that wall. And it, it certainly uh, sounded like it worked for him um, from a, just from a, a recruiting and coaching standpoint, Charlie, as we, as we start to wrap up uh, yeah, just the, you know, some of the, he had some real interesting quotes and philosophies and approaches that, that really were became his signature items as a coach. And I think other coaches would love to hear some of those, some of those bedrock things that he really lived yeah. on. Uh, to build whatever team it was that, uh, that, right. that he happened to be building. What can you walk through some of those? Yeah. Yeah. One, he, he really liked John Wooden at UCLA when Brooks was at Minnesota in the seventies was when Wooden was tearing it up at UCLA. And they both believed in, you don't put greatness into people, you pull it out. And when you look at what he did at Minnesota for seven years, he took those Minnesota kids who were really good and, and took them from good to great, like the book. And then what he did with that Olympic hockey team is staggering. The greatest coaching architecture, I think, ever in sports, because they were really good players. Many had been All-Americans in college. Half would go on to respectful NHL careers. But what's interesting, none went on to superstar careers, like with the dream teams that you've had. Right. None of the Miracle and Ice teams would, would be super, superstars like Mario Lemieux. Some would play many, many years. But what he did was he took them to a level that was incredible of stamina, of belief, of a new style and, and belief. And another thing he said, develop good habits and become slaves to them. And that's really interesting because when you develop those good habits and become to where you're a slave to them, that sounds a little odd, but it really resonates. And of course, what he said, don't be common. The common person goes nowhere. You have to be uncommon. And everybody has to define that in their life because he, for 20 years, we'd been getting shellacked pretty much in the the, the Winter Olympics because we'd get some college all-stars together, get together for two months and go and finish sixth or eighth. I mean, the Russians killed us throughout the 60s and 70s. And what he did was that seven months instead, changed the style, did those 61 exhibition games, got the hockey minor leagues to count the games when they played Team USA in their minor league standings, so they gave all. I mean, the man was brilliant. And and at the end, I'll give you some books too that uh, that can give you good resources for this because in my research, I've read these books, and for the college coach out there, they can find more pearls in them. So, so can you walk through some of those? Because um, as we wrap up, I think you know, coaches, are, yeah. of course, uh, they love putting their libraries together and, and really leaning on some books. So, what would you say? I know there's a lot out there, but give me like the top three that if you were talking to a college coach, which you are, um, the uh, right. uh, you're talking to a lot of them right now. Yeah, what, yeah, um, yeah. What books? What would be the three books you'd recommend that would really teach them not only just the history of that moment, but also right. how right. Coach Brooks built these teams? Right. I think that's what coaches at the college level yeah. are hungry for: is how do I do this? How do I be successful? I, I would Google Ross Bernstein, B E R N S T E I N, because he's written two books on Brooks, okay. Ross Bernstein, and then. 
Also, John Gilbert has a brand new book out, and then he wrote one on Herb Brooks' mastermind. John Gilbert, he was the writer in Minnesota that covered them that had special access to Brooks during the 1980 Winter Olympics. And then others include The Boys of Winter by Wayne Coffey, which came out about 10, 11 years ago. And that's just excellent reading, pure. But you go to those, Jim Craig has a book out called Gold Medal Strategies, and, and you can find Jim Craig's work on Gold Medal Strategies. And then this new book by Eruzioni, which is The Making of a Miracle, brand new. It's just hit the bestsellers. Uh, and, and I can get more information to you, Dan, to your coaches, if they ever want to bring in speakers. Uh, I have connections to how that happens because right. now it's the players are retired and they're primarily in their early 60s. And now they can get out and speak because right. they're done with their careers. Many were successful in finance and all that. So, right. well, and, and let me also let me let me, that way. let me jump at and and also um, yeah. for those listening, if you want to bring Charlie in um, to talk to your team or to the athletic department, uh, the you know he his talk on on the miracle on ice and that team and the coach and the recruiting lessons and team building lessons from that are amazing and we've had him before talk at some of the conferences we've done the email is charlie at stoke the fire within.com um and that's how you can get a hold of him or you can just email uh me and i'll i'll pass you along to him but it, it's, it's there are so many i mean and look there are a lot of teams out there that and a lot of moments where you can take lessons from them but i don't know if there's anything that you know, encompasses, you know, how do you build a great team quickly in the right way and in the version yeah. that you want and under incredible pressure too. So this isn't, you know, Hey, coach Brooks, we want you to come in and coach the Olympics. And in 12 years, we really want to be able to compete with the Russians. They were, they, mm -hmm. they yeah. Now. yeah. And so what he did was just amazing. And in, I have to say, you do such a good job of explaining it and giving the details behind it and what was going on with the Russians and some of the mistakes their coaches made. If you're a, if you love the study of coaching and sport and team building, I, I mean, I don't see any better example than the 1980 Miracle on Ice team. Um, so, Charlie, just close us out just to, as far as this conversation goes with, with Herb Brooks, that team. Um, what, what do you hope coaches take away from this? Well, the first of all, the movie Miracle with Kurt Russell is about 80% accurate. It, it's a darn good movie, but my research has unearthed, you know, a lot of the accuracies. But I think from it, here's a story that has a man that was a college coach that did it. He had been the Minnesota coach for seven years. That year, he was on hiatus from the Golden Gophers that his assistant took over. He coached gold and then in two years went to the National Hockey League. It's interesting. He came back and coached D3 St. Cloud later on. And his years after he won the Miracle on Ice at age 42 are really interesting. But I just hope they take away the Miracle on Ice is a great resource to study and learn from and apply because the lessons are applicable today. Brooks, I do believe it's the greatest coaching accomplishment of a journey in American sports history. You can argue other things. And the thing is about it is 
I don't think it was the greatest upset ever because of how hard they worked and what they did to put themselves in position. And they will tell you it wasn't a miracle. Heck yeah, it was incredibly hard, but it was earned. And so you take the template of what they did, apply it to your college program, and you can do it. But you look at the what Eruzioni did. That was the biggest score of any sport in American sports history. The Olympics, communism versus democracy. Oh my gosh, to put us ahead four to three. And so it has so many superlatives in it. Do you believe in miracles? Yes. And I just encourage college coaches to follow up and to uh, find things that they can apply in their program. Coach, that is going to wrap up this episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. Man, it is an amazing story of what they did, and hopefully you found some great insights into how Coach Herb Brooks built that team and how you can translate those philosophies and strategies in building your own program. He was just like you, Coach. He would say he was nothing special except that he knew what he wanted and he was very determined to get it. And that's one of the things that Charlie Adams brought out in that uh, in that interview. Hey, one more note. In the show notes, uh, we're going to link to some of the books that he mentioned, all of the great resources that are out there on the Miracle on Ice team and how Coach Herb Brooks built that program. So if, uh, if you want to access those, just look at the show notes. Tell your fellow coaches to listen to the College Recruiting Weekly podcast. We would love to have them in on the conversation. And we really appreciate you, Coach. If you have any questions, email me, dan at dantutor.com. And we will be back soon with another episode of the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast. The College Recruiting Weekly Podcast is a production of Tudor Collegiate Strategies, copyright 2016 through 2020. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or stream us on Stitcher, and make sure to tell the coaches in your department about the show. Email the host at dan at dantutor.com and visit the website to access more of the free resources we give to the college coaching community. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the College Recruiting Weekly Podcast.